1: Hi, and welcome back to New Books Network. I'm Daniela Meneses, the host of the channel. Today, I will be talking to Nicole Erin Morse about their new book, Selfie Aesthetics, Seeing Transfeminist Futures in Self-Representational Art, published by Duke University Press. Hi, Nicole, welcome to the show.
2: Hello, thank you so much for having me. I'm really excited for this conversation.
1: Thank you so much for being here. I was wondering if we could start by maybe you explaining what you're doing now, and also how you came to research selfies? Absolutely.
2: So right now I am an assistant professor in the School of Communication Multimedia Studies at Florida Atlantic University, and I also direct the Center for Women, Gender, and Sexuality Studies there. So I get to work at that intersection of media studies and gender studies, which is also uh, what the book explores And to be honest, I never expected to study selfies. I went to grad school at the University of Chicago with the intention of studying Eastern European cinema, which I was very enthusiastic about after my undergraduate studies. But I found myself drawn to what I was observing happening on Tumblr among communities of queer and trans folks who were using selfies in really creative, unusual, and effective ways to articulate not only their own identity but also to make political claims and theoretical arguments about the nature of the self, uh, the nature of gender. And as I spent more time looking at those images, I realized that this was something that needed to be attended to and that the existing research on selfies, and this was in 2014, so it was emerging, but even at that time, the existing research was primarily from the social sciences. And there was very little attention to selfies as aesthetic objects. Everything was about large numbers of images and the trends that one could trace across, you know, a large data set, which is important and, you know, an interesting question. But no one was looking at selfies as individual images that could be read the way that we read, that we close read uh, texts in the humanities. So as I started building kind of my archive of selfie creators who were doing really interesting work, I really wanted to see what would happen if I looked at selfies very closely from that art historical perspective and read from them meanings that might be missed if we just scroll past selfies quickly, which is, of course, often the mode of reception that selfies invite on social media platforms. And so I thought, what if we look at selfies differently? What might be possible? And then that became the dissertation, which I then revised into the book.
1: And talking precisely about selfies, before we go into your main argument, you talk about how they are often related to their na- Narcissus myth. And because of this connection, or or I don't know if because of this connection, but this connection has come with some very specific and negative conceptions around selfies. And also with a way of interacting with them, as you say, that can maybe preclude us from seeing their political force. So what is a selfie to you?
2: Yes, thank you. So the book is titled Selfie Aesthetics, Seeing Transfeminist Futures in Self-Representational Art, because I did have to admit that in the end, the work that I consider is beyond what most people would consider selfies, that the art that I explore is self-representational art more broadly. But in some ways that gets to the heart of the question of what is a selfie? Because when we speak about selfies, in the vernacular, people actually don't restrict selfie to images of the self taken on a smartphone, which I think is often what we would imagine is the fundamental definition. So there are descriptions of um, images of people taking self-portraits in the late 1800s as selfies. People will describe a photograph they post on Instagram, say, of french fries with hashtag selfie. And so the way that selfie is used to invoke some kind of self-reflexive and self-performative or self-constitutive act goes beyond any kind of specific formal or technical parameters. And so in doing that, that's why I started asking, well, what are the aesthetics, what are the signals that tell us as viewers, this is a selfie, it has a selfie quality. <laughs> and then that becomes, you know, the larger argument of the book of what those aesthetics are. And in doing that, you know, what I had to confront is the fact that the cultural attitude towards selfies is often highly critical. Um, and there's been some great work on the way that this is associated with misogyny and queer phobia. With narcissism being seen as, you know, a particularly feminine vice, and so the idea that selfies are stigmatized because they're associated with young women, um, and then to a lesser extent with queer people who are also overdetermined as narcissistic, um, the idea that that same-sex relationships are about the self-same rather than some sort of difference that's crucial to to meaning and maturity you know that comes from freud and has continued through you know some of the cultural discussion of queerness so in all those ways the narcissism of selfies which is borne out in the literature so once again you know the social scientific and psychological literature that addresses selfies you know demonstrates that there are narcissistic tendencies but as a humanist I'm convinced that our interaction with cultural objects, you know, need not be determined by those kinds of broad trends. And so while that is absolutely present in selfies, I wanted to complicate it and explore more deeply, you know, what could be possible if we bracketed narcissism and looked at other forms of relationality that emerge from selfies. And then the other reason that narcissism became really important for me in examining the work that I was looking at is because most of the work is by trans feminine artists and trans feminine people, trans women, and other people who are assigned male at birth and who transition across, you know, or away from their sex assigned at birth have long been stigmatized through um, this particular medical diagnosis, autogynephilia, which has been used um, particularly for queer trans women to say that, they don't exist, that lesbian trans women don't exist, that they are merely sexual fetishists who are obsessed with themselves. And autogynophilia is is no longer really regarded as a legitimate diagnosis in most psychological practices. But the stigma of it is very much attached to queer trans femininity, and particularly to selfie practices, which many Trans women and trans men and gender queer people, you know, find to be a very useful mode of self constitution and self imagination. So I was looking at the way that this practice of you know envisioning the self becomes stigmatized through misogyny, trans misogyny, and queerphobia, and it felt really important to interrogate not whether or not there are elements of narcissism in selfie culture, which again, there absolutely are. But what does it mean to not just take that as a given, but explore how could we move beyond it? And then in doing that, what I was recognizing is that this face-to-face relationship of seeing the other, of seeking out the face of another, of feeling reflected by the image, those aspects of interacting with self-representational art are very valuable in selfie practices and also shape self-portraiture more broadly. And that kind of intersubjectivity is also present in the midst of, you know, what might be more narcissistic practices. And that idea that there's this intersubjective encounter when we see the face of another became the starting point for the book project and what I wanted to explore in asking, you know, what am I seeing when I see selfies?
1: I want to precisely go to the main argument of the book now that you kind of set how you understand selfies. I want to quote you. You say, formal strategies common within selfies and self-representational art, what I call selfie aesthetics, provide a foundation for politically committed interpretations that contribute to our ability to imagine and work towards trans-feminist futures. So I hope... I hope to have gotten it right, and this is kind of like the the kernel of of the text. I wonder if you could explain a bit more this main argument, but also how you're understanding the term transfeminism and how you're using it throughout the text.
2: Yes, indeed, that is the main argument. Thank you so much. And um, when I make that claim, what i want to ask you know my readers or interlocutors to to do and what i have been asking myself to do is to take the skills that i have as someone who you know does a lot of textual analysis of images and look at the kinds of formal strategies that are very common in selfies and that challenge us to think about the images complexly and see how those formal strategies Can enable us as viewers to kind of collaborate with the creator of the selfie toward shared political ends. And so, in that way, the act of seeing a selfie is about both honoring and responding to the creator's intentions, and also potentially pushing beyond what the creator intended in dialogue and in cooperation with them. Obviously, of course, it is also possible to read an image against the grain and to read it against you know, what the creator's intentions might have been. But in this case, what I was really interested in is tracing how the works that I study in the book are envisioning transfeminist futures. And I'll get to transfeminism in just a moment. And then I wanted to argue that In many cases, the works don't do that on their own because these are selfies. Many of these images were created quickly for a kind of ephemeral distribution that were not necessarily intended to be dwelt with. And so there's a sort of perversity in the amount of time that I have spent with these images that might have been seen as almost disposable, certainly ephemeral in many cases by their creators. And even some of the fine art that I study, for example, Zachary Drucker and Reese Ernst's Relationship Series, was not created to be a gallery installation. It was just a collection of personal photographs that then kind of emerged into a public space, similar to Claude Kahn and Marcel Moore's photographic collaboration from, you know, a century ago. These images that were not intended to be art, but then can be received as such. And, and can be received as such as part of a public discourse about being and becoming. So then the question is, what kinds of ideas about being and becoming are these images proposing? And how can the viewer participate in creating that meaning, you know, by paying attention to formal strategies? And there are, of course, many, many formal strategies. But there were four in particular that I decided to look at in the book. But before getting to that, I'll just take a moment to talk about trans feminism and trans feminist futures. For me, I follow scholars like Emi Koyama and Susan Stryker, who describe trans feminism as, you know, one of many modes of feminism, and we have so many, and they have so many different claims on our politics, on our love, on our emotional and affective experience. And trans feminism, at its best, You know, not only centers the experiences of trans women and the political needs of trans women, but centers all those whose liberation depends upon the liberation of trans women, which is Koyama's phrase. And so, in that way, trans feminism can be seen as a mode of feminism that is about challenging misogyny, challenging prison and policing that is particularly oppressive to people who. Violate gendered norms, it brings together people who are caught up in state systems of binary surveillance and discipline in many different ways. And so, in that way, trans feminism for me is about who I am allied with rather than who I am. And as a genderqueer person who is assigned female at birth, that's been an important process for me of thinking through what does it mean to call myself a trans feminist. And I would say that transfeminism is a political position available to anyone, particularly in this project where I am centering trans women and trans feminine artists, but I myself am not trans feminine. That has been a question I've gotten frequently. Why don't I look at uh, photography by trans men in this book? Why am I not looking at people who are more like me? (laughs) And that, for me, has been a really important question to think with.
1: I want to ask you also about the the formal strategies you mentioned, but before I go into that and into like the main, the main strategies you identify, I wanted to ask you to talk a little bit more about the method you use. You already mentioned that you do formal analysis, but maybe you can talk us through some of the works of art or selfies you chose, and also the political implications of making a book about selfies. As you said, selfies that were created maybe as disposable, but giving them the time and the and the space right in your book. Thank you.
2: so the method is close formal analysis, which is a method that I have found is for me the most meaningful way to engage with cultural objects, and I have found that. Despite the criticism that it receives often of being apolitical, formal analysis and form itself, in my opinion, are profoundly political because they give shape to ideas and experience. And so while I think they can be used in a way that pretends to be apolitical, Any claim of being apolitical is in some ways the most political claim of all. (laughs) And so in my practice, what I'm looking at is how can I read form in ways that put me in dialogue with the work, that allow me to treat the work as generating its own form of theory. So rather than applying theory to the work, taking a theoretical concept and seeing if the work illustrates it, my question is, how does this work through its form, through the way it's constructed, through the way that it puts together meaning, contribute to our theoretical understanding? And so in looking at selfies, one example is the first selfie in the relationship series by Drucker and Ernst. And it's an image that was the first image that the couple took of themselves it's a bathroom selfie it's like a selfie taken in a mirror which is of course a you know very common subgenre of selfies and it's taken with this cheap digital camera not with a cell phone but it's very much you know we can see that it's a selfie the couple are sort of embracing and Zachary Drucker is holding the camera in her hand, but because it's a very low resolution image, there's a great deal of motion blur. And so at points, it's actually impossible to tell where the skin of one member of the couple ends and the other begins. Their bodies blur into each other. There's streaks of silver from the camera that kind of bleed through Drucker's hand. And this sense of motion and mobility kind of, paused, captured in the snapshot, the couple kind of blurring together and blurring together with the technology that allows them to envision their relationship, you know, all of these things speak to our current conditions as people who are becoming ourselves through our relationships to these technologies. And in that way, you know, by taking the time to look at this image and see the way that form such as the relationship of the figures in the frame, the quality of color and shape and line produced by chance by the motion blur, but then preserved by the fact that the artists chose to keep this photo and then eventually chose to exhibit it at the Whitney. All of those elements compose a set of ideas about what it means to relate to one another through the technology of a camera and then to relate to an audience as well through that technology. And so in that way, by reading the image closely, I'm able to be in dialogue with theoretical ideas that the artist didn't necessarily intend. And when I have spoken with Zachary Drucker, you know, she has said that she appreciates my interpretations and that as always, as any artist, you know, she recognizes that the interpretations are perhaps separate from her intentions, but add to the work. And I'll just give one other example because it is a little challenging to talk about images in a format that's not visual. So, you know, that is a little bit of a difficulty here. But another selfie that I found extremely helpful to think with is a selfie by artist Vivek Shraya, where she is taking a selfie with her hand outstretched holding a cell phone. So this is not the mirror selfie, but the other kind of common selfie using a front-facing camera. And she's wearing dark sunglasses so that the cell phone that she's holding out is reflected in the sunglasses. And what this produces, especially as you kind of zoom into the image, which is not something that one would typically do with a selfie, but that you do if you're spending time reading selfies closely, you're able to see the reflection of the cell phone in the sunglasses and this circuit of reflections that we as the viewer are kind of invited into, but also excluded from. It's very much similar to Las Meninas or many other classic works of art that provide a position for the viewer that is simultaneously present and absent, where we are invited into the image and then also excluded from it. And by doing that and thinking about that, you know, I find myself in this circuit of reflections, both kind of reflected by and reflecting Shraya and also looking for myself in the image and then realizing that the location that I feel like I physically occupy is actually substituted by the phone, which of course is a technology of communication that connects us as humans. So once again, this kind of intersubjective relationship emerges. And I think that particular image could be seen as this narcissistic experience of of solipsistic closure, but that in fact, it opens up to the viewer. And by looking closely at those relationships, the aspects of framing and structure within the formal relations of the image, then these new ideas emerge about how we relate to each other and how we relate to technology.
1: I'm going to ask you for um, a bit more examples, precisely because I want to go with detail into the formal strategies you identify. I think it's very useful when you describe images, because as you say, without looking at them, it's difficult, but hearing you talk about them, we can imagine them. So one of these formal strategies you identify um, is doubling. Could you talk a bit more about what doubling is and what it can do to our understandings of both? selfhood and transness?
2: Absolutely. So doubling is one of the most evident structures, formal structures within self-portraiture in general, and selfies, of course, being a subset of self-portraiture. They participate in that as well. And so one of the first places I looked was in the literature on self-portraiture, where scholars have identified that for centuries, artists have been creating these works that are open to the viewer so Michael Freed talks about the hand that disappears beyond the frame. That's the artist's hand painting the portrait, say, in a classic Rembrandt. And that as the viewer, we are almost invited to see ourselves as substituting for the mirror the artist was looking at or substituting for the canvas that is being painted by this hand that intrudes into our space. And that idea of the hand intruding into the space becomes a really powerful way of thinking about selfies. Especially when the selfie taker has an outstretched arm holding a cell phone, and in some ways it feels like that arm is wrapping around the viewer, holding us in this kind of experience of reflection. So I was looking at the way that reflections, mirrors, shadows, and other forms of visual doubling, the visual rhetoric of doubling, occur in selfies, and allow us to think about the way that we become through our relationships to others. So in many ways it's a very like levinassian exploration of the encounter with the other, the encounter with the face, both literal and the, you know, metaphorical face. And in doing that that offers another way of thinking about self-constitution in general and especially the way that media studies thinks about the mirror stage where, you know, we're always imagining that the mirror stage is being revisited, but in revisiting it, in encountering, you know, ego ideals through the image um, on the screen, you know, that is a different experience than that initial encounter with the mirror, you know, that Lacan discusses. But in discussing trans subjectivity, often this idea of the mirror stage is imagined as kind of continually reiterated, as if a trans person who is transitioning is at a kind of earlier point in maturity or in, you know, becoming themselves than a cis person. I think that is, you know, complicated and challenging. And so what I was looking at is the way that artists are using doubling, not to just recreate the mirror stage and not to just revisit it, but actually to examine how we interact with reflections, how we interact with images of ourselves And that's something that Drucker and Ernst do in a lot of detail in their project. And so looking at the way that they use form to show that doubles and doubling and reflection is constructed, it is formally created within the image, it's not intrinsic or inherent, but it is produced, that enabled me to kind of think about the way the mirror stage operates in our understanding of trans subjectivity as a construction, as an experience that is being constantly negotiated rather than just a transparent or evident self-evident stage. And then the other element where mirrors become important specifically for trans experience and mediated trans experience is the mirror scene. And that's kind of the classic trope particularly in films where a trans character sees themselves in the mirror and experiences dysphoria and there's you know usually an expression of distress or discomfort and the mirror scene is this kind of painfully persistent trope that really limits our way of understanding trans experience to dysphoria but even limits you know the understanding of dysphoria and the understanding of trans experience of the body to just this entirely negative affective experience so in looking at some of these circuits of reflection and the ways that artists are using their own reflection and using others as reflections of themselves, including things like the sunglasses that I described. That's something that the artist Tourmaline does some really fascinating things with is these sunglasses that reflect her hand, her cell phone, or nothing at all. And that itself is you know, kind of ghostly and haunting to be evacuated from the image so completely in a situation where as the viewer, we kind of expect to be invited in in the way that, that self-portraiture has so often done. So in all those ways, rather than just recreating the mirror scene, selfie aesthetics and paying attention to doubling and the visual rhetoric of doubling enables this opportunity to challenge the mirror scene, to interrogate it, and to explore you know what are the relationships of, of self to reflection in you know, trans experience and uh, transcultural production.
1: There's another common argument that's usually talked about when we talk about transness and and representation which I think it's the binary of visibility invisibility politics right and another argument you make through the book is that and I want to quote you again that selfies cannot be understood through the simple binaries of visibility politics where selfies allow marginalized people to become visible to the other. Instead, these selves unfold unpredictably, you say, as the present opportunities for resistance that go beyond reiterating or resignifying hegemonic norms. Uh, That's the end of the quote, but you also argue there that maybe instead of talking in terms of visibility, we could be asking if selfie aesthetics nurture what you refer to as trans-conspiracy.
2: That idea of trans-conspiracy comes from Kay Gossett's uh, work, and specifically from a Facebook post that they created. And one of the things I love about working with selfies, with a form that is you know, seen as not serious enough, is also the opportunity to work with theory that is emerging in modes that are, quote-unquote, not serious enough. And I was delighted to find that in Marquise Bay's Black trans feminism. they also quote this Facebook post that Kay Gossett shared a few years ago, I think it was in 2017. But this idea that, that Gossett puts forth is that rather than visibility politics, we want to pay attention to trans conspiracy, trans as on the run from gender. And that is responding to the way that visibility has been mobilized ever since 2014 and the trans tipping point when Laverne Cox was on the cover of Time as this strategy that kind of guarantees inclusion and acceptance. And is a very ahistorical way of understanding trans visibility because in fact, trans people have kind of continuously become visible and entered into mainstream awareness only to face enormous backlash. So of course, Christine Jorgensen in the 1950s, in the 1980s, there was again, a kind of wave of trans visibility that was then faced with a wave of violent backlash. And that's what we are also seeing today, particularly, you know, in this moment where trans people and quote unquote, gender ideology is um, being targeted, you know, across the globe by these right wing, um, politicians as, as such a serious threat. And it does feel like it's a response to visibility. And then on the more kind of quotidian or ordinary individual level, trans people who are visibly trans experience you know much higher levels of interpersonal violence. And so this idea that visibility is a good in and of itself is something that I wanted to trouble, particularly because selfies were imagined, especially in kind of the mid-20-teens, as this technology that was going to revolutionize the experience of marginalized people. Suddenly, marginalized people would be able to represent themselves, would be able to become visible, and then would get accepted by society. And, you know, this is the kind of excitement that we see over and over with new technology, VHS or even earlier, 16 millimeter cameras. You know, if representational technology becomes cheaper and more accessible, we imagine that will produce visibility, which will produce inclusion. And all too often, that is not the case. And so rather than looking at selfies as this idea of becoming visible, particularly since many of the artists whose work I follow had a conflicted relationship to visibility, and were not necessarily enthusiastic about visibility, I wanted to see, well, given that they are engaging in a practice that is on some level at least about visuality if not about visibility how are they using it to explore visibility and that's where i ended up exploring two ideas that are interrelated and i think are important for selfie aesthetics and that's improvisation and seriality so the idea that rather than this becoming visible or being invisible there is a improvisatory a spontaneity to selfie production that means that selfies are responsive to particular moments and that they are responsive and engaged with not just this broad context of visible or invisible but more nuanced and local considerations and then selfies are received not only as one image where someone is, again, either visible or not visible, but rather as a part of series. And those series can be intended by the creator, um, such as, again, the relationship series or uh, Vivek Shraya's Trauma Clown, which I've written about separately, or these series emerge based on the way that we make associations as viewers between images. So, you know, I talked about bathroom selfies, you know, this is something that people comment on as a subgenre. You can recognize it. It's the person taking a photo in a mirror of a bathroom, often a public restroom. <laughs> and so there's all of this kind of like specific framing, background that shapes the way that we see these images that people take in that particular context with the reflection in the mirror. And then there's, you know, selfies that people take when they're at a cool location and most of the selfies that i consider are not that type of selfie but that is a you know enormous subgenre of selfies selfies that say i was here and so by looking at selfies as serial productions rather than individual objects it becomes possible to see the selfie as interacting with visibility in more complex ways and questioning the, the use of visibility and also exploring its ambiguities and ambivalences. And so for that aspect of the book, I look particularly at work by Alok Vaid Menon, who's a designer and activist who takes a lot of selfies and often accompanies those selfies with captions that interrogate the rhetoric of the image. And so the image might be, seeming to produce a kind of transparent visibility for Vade Menon, and especially for their gender queer identity. But then the caption asks the viewer to pause and look more carefully. So in one series that I look at, Vaid Menon, who's South Asian, wears a blonde wig, and has this tension between the blondness of the wig, which is very long, very hyper feminine, and then the dark hair of their own body, which... Seems to be signaling both kind of their authentic racial identity as well as being in conflict with the gender identity that people might expect them to be performing. And this is part of a larger project of Vade Menon's where they challenge the way that we associate body hair with femininity. I mean, body hair with masculinity. So, femininity is signified by the absence of body hair, which is, of course, a very racialized and very white standard of beauty. And so, in all these ways, all of that emerges through the seriality of selfies. The fact that there's one image after another, after another that continue exploring, you know, this particular aspect of Bade Menon's embodiment. And with Kay Gossett, I look at the way that they intersperse images of themselves and their body, which we would assume to be the subject of a selfie, the face, the shoulders, you know, a kind of headshot framing with images of their hand holding objects of nourishment from classical theory to more contemporary and radical theoretical and political texts to flowers, cake, etc. And so this idea that what we're seeing is a series of images that slowly kind of accumulate meaning rather than an either or of kind of a binary. And so between that improvisatory um, aesthetics and serial, serial aesthetics, what I hoped to explore is not just the way that selfies deal with visibility, but also the way they can be understood in dialogue with theories of gender performativity, which, you know, in Butler's original is a deeply complex and nuanced account of of how we all come to be, but has too often been discussed reductively as a kind of question of whether gender expression is in conflict with sex assigned at birth. And this is exactly what Butler was not trying to suggest. But because of that reductive version, gender performativity is often uh, regarded as something that is understood, you know, as a kind of either or. Either you're challenging gender norms or you're not. And it's much more iterative. It's much more complex than that. It's much more emerging through series, through improvisation, through kind of development and modulation and improvisation upon the norms and with the norms. Um, So through seriality and improvisation, I make an argument about gender performativity and how gender performativity operates in selfies uh, that goes beyond what people often describe, where the point is to just see moments of disjunction between what we assume to be the sex assigned at birth and gender expression. Um, And the final, oh, sorry.
1: No, no, no. I think it's it's really important that you go through these arguments because I think this is, for me, at least, it was one of the most challenging parts of the book when you talk about performativity. And I think this relates to the fact that Butler is very challenging. So if you can go into detail about that, please feel free. With gender performativity, one of
2: the major questions I wanted to explore is the way that gender performativity has become very challenging within queer and trans communities because of the way that it's often understood as agential. And I again, I don't think that's what Butler means to say, but in their original discussion of gender performativity, they're talking about drag performances, which are agential experiences. And others, you know, from Ki Namaste to Jay Prosser have talked about the fact that, you know, by highlighting performance, Butler's work inadvertently blurs the lines between a performance which is an intentional act and a performative which is not necessarily fully agential fully conscious fully intentional it's caught up in subconscious unconscious cultural scripts and other kinds of social uh, constructions that we are constantly you know in dialogue with in ways that a performance is not and so this idea you know that gender performatives become overdetermined as gender performances has made it very difficult for people to see Butler's real insight, which is that we are all iteratively producing our gender all the time. And instead, it spectacularizes trans people as this kind of model or example that then doesn't allow trans people to just live (laughs) and also doesn't ask cis people to look and understand themselves as part of this process of gendering and gendered being. And then in all those ways, there's also a racialized component of it because gender is racialized and race is gendered. And so the fact that the performances that Butler is, you know, originally speaking about are largely ballroom performances by people of color Complicates our idea of you know what it even means to intentionally embody, interrogate, and play with cultural norms that are you know not just about uh, cis sexist ideas of gender, but also about white uh, supremacist ideas of of gender and sexuality. And so, in all those ways, I was curious to look at how seriality enables artists of color to interrogate. What it means to be visible. And this is also in dialogue with scholars who have observed that for people of color, especially queer people of color, visibility, invisibility, or the idea of coming out of the closet, you know, being either in or out of the closet, is insufficient to describe the hypervisibility and total obscurity that people of color often have to negotiate. And so, in all those ways, selfie seriality, I see as a way. For artists to navigate that rather than having to exist in one extreme or the other, these images can work together, can speak to each other, and can even speak to images by other people. (laughs) And in that way, create a more robust, complex dialogue about what it is to embody ourselves and to become ourselves, especially publicly in dialogue with social norms, in dialogue with hegemonic
1: values. Thank you for that explanation. Talking about surreality, you kind of introduced the other topic I wanted to ask you about, which is time. You talk a a lot about queer temporality. You find that there seems to be an idea that online temporality is automatically queer. Because you find it online and you find it like, I guess, in different moments in a way. People understand it as queer, but this, however puts the critical potential of queer temporality at risk. Could you tell us how you understand the, the relationship between selfie aesthetics, queer temporalities, and also how you introduce the idea of speculative archive, which I found super, super interesting and a really rich part of the, of the book. So there's two
2: assumptions that are at play. One, like you said, that online time is automatically non-linear or non-chronological, and it often is because it's algorithmic time, especially on social media, which is where you know selfies seem to live. And then the other assumption is that non-linear time is either automatically queer or automatically radical, which sometimes is collapse, the idea that queer is radical or radical is queer. And I wanted to look at both of those assumptions because when it comes to thinking about trans people, temporality and the temporality of transition have been very fraught. And the idea that trans people are embodying some sort of chrononormativity by transitioning from one place to another (laughs) has been leveled as a critique by some queer folks or queer theorists who would like to see you know, a kind of radical critique of chrononormativity or the ways that time is supposed to operate in a normative way. You know, we grow up, we get married, we raise children. The idea that chrononormativity is heteronormative makes sense, you know, on a certain level, but it also similar to the critiques that have been offered for Lee Edelman's No Future, which is perhaps, you know, one of the most well-known arguments for queer nonlinearity it overlooks the fact that, you know, we all actually do live in linear time. I mean, (laughs) we are born, we continue progressing through time. And it doesn't help to ask uh, time or our relationship to time to determine our radicality. I think our, our radicality, our political potential to challenge oppressive systems is not automatic. It does not come from you know, as a queer person, not having children, or not getting married, that in and of itself does not produce political potential that leads to liberation and well being for as many people as possible, which, you know, would be my political goal. And so I wanted to look at what happens if I question the idea that nonlinear time is automatically radical. And also the idea that selfies are either about linear time, like selfie timelines or transition timelines, which is a, another sub of selfies, you know, take a picture every day over the course of however many months of starting HRT and, you know, dramatize how your body changes. This is a very, very common mode for trans selfie creators to use. And again, it's highly critical. Uh, it's highly criticized by people who are seeking for trans people to embody some sort of Non-normative radicality that the individual trans person may or may not care to embody themselves, and so um, I was looking at those questions of of linear time, online time, and you know radical um, political uses of time. And what I became interested in is the way that self-representational art, especially digital self-representational art, offers these opportunities for the creator to show themselves working with time and with the image. So again, resisting this idea of anything being automatic or transparent or determined, the technology does not necessarily determine what is possible. It's the choices that the creator is making in engaging with the technology that enable them to produce linear or nonlinear time, chrononormativity, or some other form of time. And the two artists I look at the most are ContraPoints or Natalie Wynn. I look at the way that she has used digital video to revisit and re edit and revise her self representation, but in ways that are very clearly marked. And so she's staging the way that she is asked to continually kind of re-narrate herself, particularly in dialogue with, say, wrong body discourse, where the idea that trans people are supposed to kind of erase their past becomes, you know, a prominent part of the discourse. She's staging her revision of her own digital image, which is possible because of the flexibility of the digital image. Although, you know, this has also always been possible with analog photography as well. And then the other artist I look at is uh, Vivek Shraya's series, Trisha which is a set of images that she created with collaborators based on photographs that her father took of her mother in the 1970s when they had recently emigrated to Canada from uh, India. And so in Shraya's work, she restages these images um, playing her mother. But it's not maybe as clear as it initially appears because she's not just taking her mother's place. She's also occupying this space of the daughter that her mother imagined and was going to name Trisha, but also feared having because her mother understood how difficult it is to be a woman and hoped to have sons. And so in restaging these images, you know, after coming out as a trans woman, Vivek Shraya is able to become the daughter her mother wanted, but didn't feel she could have in a way that the people in the original photographs from the 1970s, you know, did not imagine that this future was possible. And so by creating this alternative future, what I argue Shreya is doing is creating a speculative archive. And this is a concept that Alison Nadia Field, who is one of my advisors at uh, the University of Chicago, has been discussing and elaborating for some time and drawing particularly on work by artists of color who have created these speculative archives where no archive exists to make visible, to make evident what we know did exist, but which was not preserved because the politics of, you know, preservation are such that, you know, the images that could have existed either were not preserved or perhaps those images never came to be because of economic, racial, gendered oppression. And so in all these ways, these speculative archives enable us to kind of create the history that makes our present and our future possible. And that's what I see Shreya doing in this project, the, the Tricia series, is creating an alternative history for her family that opens up these fissures in time. And so once again, it's not necessarily any deterministic result Of nonlinear time that produces these possibilities. It's her choices and the material ways she's working with the image and on the image that produce these possibilities. And so, you know, in, in short, when it comes to time and temporality with selfies, I think what's really interesting is how people use selfies to understand time and to put themselves into time, to take themselves out of time and to work with time.
1: I don't know if this question, if you find this question makes sense, please feel free to tell me if you don't. But do you think your book, in a way, also works as a speculative archive? Or like you're kind of creating the archive you wished existed? Thank you for that question. I think what the book does
2: along those lines is enable me to put in dialogue a set of artists who I see as closely and complementarily relating to each other. and in many cases they actually know each other and there are kind of collaborations that you can trace in their selfies, especially because one of the practices that is you know a key intersubjective aspect of selfies where the visual rhetoric of doubling appears is the fact that we take selfies with other people. And so you know we stage these moments of, of the self in relation to others. and so that's something that that can be traced. But in some cases, these artists do not know each other and have not worked together. And so it enables me to put them into dialogue. I wouldn't say that it's a speculative archive per se, but what it is, is like any other academic project that deals with a number of case studies. By pulling together these individual cases, you know, something emerges that is larger than any one uh, iteration. And in that way, you know, I hope that what the book does is take the theoretical, political, and aesthetic contributions that these images are making, and by putting them in dialogue with each other and with my own kind of experience of reading them closely, generate another layer of meaning that then hopefully readers can participate in and then take into their own practices of selfie viewing, of selfie production, of reflecting on you know, self-constitution and our intersubjective dependence on others. And so I hope that it is part of that dialogue.
1: I think it does do that. And I ask this question because you interrogate a lot and you make us interrogate ourselves as readers, how we look, and in a way you're putting forward a way you wish us to look. So you're saying, ideally, I would want you, reader, to be looking at that and I think it achieves that so that's how I that's why I was asking about the ways in which it kind of acts as an archive that could be depending on us the readers and how much we take of it.
2: In some way that's the ethical project of the book is to intervene in the idea that that marginalized people need to make themselves visible to and be kind of accepted into common sense and to actually ask the people who are the audience, the people who are witnessing to consider our role and our responsibility. So the prescriptive aspect of the book is the claim that basically it's not up to the person who is creating the selfie to, say, convince me of their humanity. Uh, again, to, to talk about the way that selfies and marginalized populations are often understood, that they're supposed to humanize, they're supposed to persuade the audience of the humanity of the subject. I wanted to flip the responsibility, the ethical responsibility, and ask, you know, what does it mean to look? What does it mean to see? And this is the larger project, I think, of, of my next research, is to consider... In other ways, you know, what it means to be a spectator, to be an audience member, and to bring our political commitments, um, as well as our own experiences to that position, rather than seeing the audience or the spectator as a blank slate that the creator is is trying to effect or impact or manipulate, to ask, you know, what, what are we doing when we are seeing um, art, cultural production, etc.?
1: I wanted to end by asking about your future project, but before that, you also mentioned some of the ethical issues about seeing, but you also address in the book, the ethical issues that arise when you are uh, researching the work of people, of trans people of color, especially not identifying, you don't identify as a person of color, right?
2: That's correct. Yes, I'm a white Jewish genderqueer person. So Yes. The question of positionality has been a really important question for me to grapple with. And there's three different ways that I think about this. You know, one, on just a very basic level, I think it's important and, and critical for everyone within the academy to recognize that every form of cultural production is valuable for us all to study. That it is important for white people to study Black film, for example, that it is important for straight people to study queer performance, that the idea that something that comes from a marginalized population should only be studied by people from that particular population suggests that those works do not have critical, valuable relevance for all of us. And I think that's you know absolutely wrong. But then, of course, there's the question of, you know, I study Uh, works by trans feminine people and specifically trans feminine people of color from outside that community. And that produces a different kind of ethical responsibility. And what's been very important to me and, and what I hope I have done in the book is really draw on that ethical position of the spectator or the audience in order to say that my project is to try to better understand what these works are saying. And this goes back to what I said about the art itself producing theory I am not taking the theory and applying it to the work. I'm looking to better understand what the work is saying. And so, in that way, what I am trying to do is to be in dialogue with the ideas, the insights, the cultural production, the theoretical ideas that are emerging from this work and putting myself into that conversation as an interlocutor, as someone who is listening, who is learning, and who is then trying to share what I have learned with others. And I think. That that position is a position that perhaps you know, all scholars should take, a certain humility toward our object of study, because it always has more to teach us in some ways than, than we could ever express. You know, The struggle of writing is trying to convey you know, all that is possible and potential in, in what we are researching. But in particular, in a situation like this, it felt Im- imperative that I stay aware that I am learning from rather than kind of declaring the truth of these works that I want to study. And then I think the final piece for me that was fascinating was the number of times people assumed that I should be writing about Judaism. I don't study Judaism at all. It is not an aspect of my research that I should be writing about uh, transmasculine people because I'm assigned female at birth. And this assumption that people must do quote unquote me search is something that I I really want to challenge because I think the assumption then becomes not just that work by marginalized populations, by people who have been oppressed or minoritized can only be studied by those people, but also that if you do in some way belong to any kind of marginalized or minoritized group. Anyone besides white cis men who have a particular kind of class relation and and other forms of power, they are the people who could study anything, and the rest of us have to only study ourselves. And I disagree. I think we have an obligation to be in dialogue with as much of the rich cultural production that exists as possible, rather than limiting ourselves only to engaging with work that seems to be quote-unquote appropriate. And that is not to in any way dismiss the incredible value of studying work that comes from a culture, a population, an experience that is similar to one's own. And in some ways, you know, for me, as someone who is disidentifying with the position of woman but feels that feminism is absolutely vital, this work has been a very powerful way for me to understand femininity in new ways. And so in that way, it has also spoken to me personally while simultaneously being a project of learning from the artist whose work I study.
1: Thank you for that answer. It was a really interesting answer. And also I can relate to it in in some ways being a a Latin American and Peruvian person. But before before I end and before, I'm sorry for taking so much of your time, but one final question. You mentioned already kind of what you're working on now. I don't know if you want to, give a bit more detail maybe? Are you also working with pictures now? Is it also in the realms of selfies?
2: So I've moved away from selfies proper. I really enjoyed that work, but I am finding that I want to look at other questions. And right now, the questions that are really um, preoccupying my mind are questions about the way that, that visibility and mediation operate in dialogue with incarceration so this is another situation where the idea that visibility enables the process of humanizing is often assumed to be the way that we will perhaps improve conditions for incarcerated people especially queer and trans people who are incarcerated and my struggle with that is that it defers liberation it defers the process of addressing oppression until such time as the general population, the unincarcerated population, has had enough people become visible to them to feel called upon to grant humanity. And so my question for my next research project is, what are the ways that that mediation, that art created by incarcerated people and circulated within networks of both incarcerated and their quote unquote, free world allies, incarcerated people and their free world allies, how that work and that process of mediated exchange is producing forms of liberation, forms of harm reduction in this moment. So rather than this kind of deferral of liberation until the process of visibility has been achieved, I want to know know, what is happening in moments where people who are incarcerated are using media to tell their stories and to interact with each other and the outside world beyond kind of this idea of petitioning to be allowed into the common sense of what we consider to be the human. So that's the next project. And it definitely grows out of the work that I did in this project and once again deals with ephemeral work and with self-representational work, but much less digital work, more uh, drawings and sketches, poetry, and other forms of self-expression.
1: That's really interesting. I really hope to read about it. Thank you. And thank you so much for being here, for taking the time to talk to us. Thank
2: you so much for this opportunity.